0: Welcome to the Boys in Blue Podcast, the podcast that's all about cops. I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. You have tuned in undoubtedly to the most informational law enforcement podcast out there today because we'll talk to real cops, some active, some retired, and we'll get the inside story on law enforcement. Again, I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds, and once again, I'm seated behind the stainless steel titanium microphone inside the Boys in Blue podcast studio here in Mesa, Arizona. And, you know, on this podcast, we've had the privilege of having all chiefs of police, sheriffs, SWAT guys, traffic guys, just regular patrolmen. And we talk about some of the war stories, you know, how we oh uh, shootouts and traffic stops and burglary arrest. And, and we, we talk about how some of the suspects we've cornered, why they, they get convicted and they go off to prison. And, and that's the last we hear of them music. Well, what happens after they go off to prison? Well, today, I have the absolute privilege to have, as my guest, Ernie Torillo, he is a regional operations director for the Department of Corrections in the state of Arizona for 34 years in Arizona. And prior to that, he was with New Mexico uh, Corrections for three years. So that's 37 years in the corrections <laughs> division. So that gives us a good insight. You know, we always think, well, there's an old saying, we catch them, you clean them. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we catch these guys and we turn them over to the Department of Corrections, and and a lot of people don't really realize what goes on there. In fact, I don't. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So, Ernie, are you there today? Yes, sir. Good morning, Bill. Oh, good to good to have you on the podcast. Now we go back we go back a little ways. I met you because your wife, Liz Trillo, spent 24 years as a Mesa police officer. She's also part of the Honor Guard and uh, worked closely with my wife, Barbara, who was with Mesa PD. And I met you, Ernie, in Washington, D.C. during Police Week. We were there. Uh, yeah. uh, you were there with Liz on the Honor Guard and Barb was there with the Honor Guard. And I had rolled my bike on the Police Unity Tour from New Jersey all the way down to Washington, D.C. So that's how we first met. Now I, you spent 37 years in corrections. Now tell me how. Correct. Where did you grow up at? And you start there. Where's your background? Your family and that. Um, my family is based in New Mexico,
1: uh, primarily in Central New Mexico, Rio Grande Valley. Um, I also um, I, I spent my school years, my school age years, actually growing up in Tucson. Um, okay. Gra- okay. Graduated from Palo Verde High School in Tucson, and then uh, joined the Marine Corps and left from there.
0: Wow! So you were in the Marine Corps. What years was that? Nineteen seventy-nine through eighty, eighty-three
1: technically. Um, okay. My terminal leave began in uh, eighty at the end of eighty-two.
0: Yeah. Now, what did you do in the Marines? The same thing everybody does in the Marines. <laughs> Every every marine is a rifleman first. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Um, well, I was in the started out in the infantry and then moved on over to uh, to recon actually for the rest of my tour in the Marine Corps.
0: Wow, I think uh, being in the service is such an asset for anybody that goes into law enforcement for sure. So, how did you get attracted to law enforcement from the Marine Corps? Well, uh, I, I'm. What I would, what we would
1: consider a corrections brat. My dad, uh, spent a career in, in the prison system, both in uh, New Mexico and Arizona.
0: Oh, really? Uh, he was all, okay. He,
1: yeah, he was also a police officer in, uh, in New Mexico, in, uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, as well as, uh, Belen, New Mexico. Um, I was, I just getting getting ready to leave the Marine Corps and, my goal was to join the New Mexico State Police. They've got the sharpest uniforms. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, they look sharp. And uh, they're a very, uh, very tight unit. So I began the testing process for that and needed a job. And uh, my parents were in New Mexico there. I uh, asked if I could stay with them. And it was real easy for my dad to say, yes, but you, you stay with us, you work. Uh, so, he helped me get a job there at the penitentiary Um and I got hooked. In fact, I never even went back and completed my testing for the state police. The, the work inside the walls, uh, it, it really stuck with me. We had a lot of fun. I had a really tight unit. Um, it was very challenging. Uh, all the things that uh, I looked forward to. And being a cop, I got working an unarmed beat inside the prison.
0: So, you know, most guys, officers,
1: would not want
0: to be in the penitentiary at all. <laughs> and I'm one well, of them. And I think I've shared on the podcast before that when I first became a uh, police officer up in Washington State, they uh, part of the probation and the training part was a the, uh had you work the jail for 30 days, 30 days, wow. county jail, just to give, give you a feel for what it's like. And, you know, when you put your arm on someone and says you're going to jail, well, you know what you're doing to them. <laughs> and those 30 days were so valuable in learning how the criminal element thinks and works. And, and I also share that the same people that I saw in those 30 days in my rookie year I saw the same faces over and over the whole my whole career, but I did mm-hmm. not in, I did not enjoy that. Now, me, I don't think it's much different in mm-hmm. the state prison, but the county jail. I mean, you got six back then anyway. It was like a dungeon, Ernie. I'm telling you, you know, that's mm-hmm. way back. <laughs> Sixteen guys in the tank, uh, God knows what, went on. There's 300 inmates. There was three of us. <laughs> yeah, odds are not good. No, no. In fact, uh, I'd like to share this. The way I controlled it in the back there, I'd pick out the biggest, toughest guy in the tank and I'd say, listen, I don't want any trouble in here tonight. If there's no trouble tonight, you get an extra phone call. (laughs) Okay. And that's the way it worked for us there. But anyway. Exercise a little peer pressure within. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure you're very familiar with that. Well, tell me, um, so you come out of the Marines, you went to penitentiary. Now, how did you transfer from New Mexico penitentiary over to Arizona? So working in New Mexico is a, it's
1: a very small correctional system. And, you know, we used to joke that you had to wait for somebody to die or retire to get a chance at a promotion Mm. and, um, you know, I, I wanted to look for a little more upward mobility at the time. Uh, my dad had since left New Mexico and was working in the Arizona system, and said, "Hey, Arizona is really starting to grow. Uh, you might want to come check it out." So I I came back down to Arizona to visit, and uh, you know, ran into a bunch of old friends and things like that, and decided, "Yeah, I think I'll uh, I'll give it a shot." And I applied and was hired to work at the uh, Arizona State Prison Complex in Tucson, and began my Arizona career there in 1985.
0: So now everybody, I'm assuming, starts as a guard on the inside, so to speak. Is that the way that works? Um, Primarily, if you come in with a degree, you might be
1: able to get in as uh, as a case manager in the program side of things. I didn't have that. And quite frankly, being a uniformed officer is really what I wanted to do anyway. So uh, that's how it began. That's how it begins for for the majority of of the employees in the department.
0: So I'm thinking now, you you got these guys in there now. You know, I spent a little time transporting in that, but I didn't really see a whole lot in the uh, prison system. You know, so and you know what people, I think most of my audience, what they see is on TV and watching that show lockdown or something like that. And it looks pretty dangerous at times. Um, I know they have control of the guys, but at the same time, when you look out there in the yard and there's, you know, I don't know what 30 guys just walking around. And uh, I know there's, I don't, was there a lot of gang activity at that time when you started? Um,
1: It was starting to ramp up. Uh, You know, the, the whole criminal street gang growth, um, really really started to explode in the 1980s and up and then you had uh you know get tough on crime laws that were coming into place so they were locking up more people and as a result uh you know as the the prison systems grew so do the uh the gang elements Mm
0: -hmm. okay so you start there uh uniformed (coughs) officer and tell me how your career progressed from there, Ernie. How did you go from the basic all the way up to regional operations director? Well, um,
1: I like to tell the story that uh, this, was not, this was not a career that I did on my own. I was blessed to work with some some great professionals in mm. my career that, that really taught me. Um, how to do the job well, how to do it right um, and the how to be part of a team and contribute that way so you know my my career was really on the shoulders of all my coworkers and my mentors that I had throughout the years um, i I held every uniformed rank from correctional officer, sergeant, lieutenant, captain. And major, major being the uh, senior uniformed officer at the prison complex. And uh, again, I, I think it was uh, a real testament to the people that I worked with and learned from.
0: Mm. Well, knowing you, Ernie, that doesn't surprise me that you know who to give the credit for things. And we don't go anywhere alone, do we? We, uh, yeah. No, sir. Yeah. Oh, no. So, how long did it take you to become like from? To progress from sergeant lieutenant and all the way up to major it took uh roughly 10 years um, i was able to move you know that's that's pretty
1: rapid uh in that system uh, but opportunities came at the right time uh we uh, in 1988 i was a sergeant i had um uh, i was working out in Catalina at Catalina Mountain Juvenile Institution, working with, with youth. And the the whole boot camp phenomenon began to take hold in the United States, where different, different states and counties uh, thought that maybe exposing them to a boot camp style of intervention would slow down youthful offenders from coming into prisons and arizona jumped on that and in 19, 1988 created the shock incarceration program uh, and with my military background and stuff thought maybe maybe I'd be able to contribute there and uh, see what that is like so i was able to interview and test for that program and was hired for it and worked uh, worked several years in the shock incarceration program uh, leading drill instructors leading officers who became and were trained as drill instructors for young offenders 18 to 25 years old and i did that until uh, as a sergeant as a lieutenant and as a captain uh, eventually finishing as the commanding officer of that program before i uh, became a major
0: okay so from the Catalina part, you went up through sergeant, lieutenant, and captain, huh? In the same facility. Yeah, associated. that that was out in yeah out in Florence. Okay. Where that program was was based. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, just let me take a little detour here. How many prisons, penitentiaries, does Arizona have in the so state? So Arizona has yeah Arizona has ten operated prison
1: complexes. So what Arizona does is instead of individual uh, smaller prisons if you will, they have prison complexes where there are up to sometimes between at least three and six individual prison units. And the units generally are 800 to up to 1,200 inmates per unit all in a Complex area, so you know you're looking at a small city. The I mountain, see. You
0: will. Wow. Okay.
1: There, there are ten of those within the state of Arizona, from down in Douglas, Arizona, Safford, Tucson, uh, Yuma, up, up, actually out by uh, San Luis, close to the border. You have uh, two large prison complexes in Florence. You have one up in Winslow. Uh, you have one out in Goodyear. Uh, where the female inmates are all housed. There's a large one out in Buckeye, outside of Buckeye. Um, And then in uh, downtown Phoenix is the department's uh, reception and diagnostic center where all the intake is done, and it's also a uh, licensed mental health facility. Then you have uh, six privately operated prisons that the state contracts with private operators to manage those prisons that are also out within the state. You have it uh, in Morana. You have uh, a couple outside of Eloy. You have two in Florence and then a large one up in Kingman.
0: Now that's a f- uh, fairly new concept, isn't it, class? This uh, privately run?
1: Not really. It's It's been around for more than
0: 20 years easily. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, they <laughs> just got they just got more attention i guess in the last
1: they're getting a lot more attention and a lot yeah. of it typically is is uh based on bad news you know something yeah, goes yeah. wrong inside one of those and uh you know that's where yeah. people come out uh talking against uh for profit prison work
0: sure so i'm assuming now you tell me if i'm wrong they send them to the diag- diagnostic center there and then they fan them out from there whatever whatever facility meets the needs that, that they have. Is that the way that works with yes. inmates? Yes, there's an assessment done on
1: them. Uh, they are initially classified. There's an objective classification system that the department uses in order to determine uh, public risk based on severity of crime and institutional risk as to you know any previous uh, incarceration. They look at uh, educational needs, programming needs as far as any kind of uh, counseling that might be required and uh, drug, mental health, all those type of issues, health needs also because there's a lot of uh, a lot of sick people out there that end up coming to prison. Oh
0: yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, I was in the healthcare field for a while and I knew some of the the nurses that work the prison there a lot of uh, diabetics that need shots, all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, a lot of uh, Oh yeah, with you know a lot of these guys and and women Uh, their lifestyles out on the street aren't very healthy lifestyles. You know, they get involved in drug addiction, uh, alcohol addiction, all kinds of things that ends up just wreaking havoc on their bodies. You know, they share needles, which results in um, HIV infections or hepatitis C.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: You talk about the diabetes. Diabetes is, uh, is, that's a big deal as
0: well. Sure. Oh, boy. Well, so now from commander of operations there was the regional operations director position. Was that appointed or is that another? Uh... That's a, that's an appointed position. Uh,
1: works at the pleasure of the director of the Department of Corrections. Okay. Um,
0: how, how many years did you do that, Ernie? I did that, uh, let's see,
1: nine years uh, oh. I did that. And then uh, from there, I,
0: I went ahead and uh, retired.
1: I retired at the end of June in
0: 2019. Okay. So you're in charge of what, five different facilities or how'd that work? So as a regional operations director, uh, the, the
1: department breaks it up into two separate regions, a northern region and a southern region. And uh, half of, five of the 10 prison complexes are under the command of one operations director and then five on the other. Okay. Uh, there's a t- approximately 42,000 inmates within the prison system scattered through the 10 prison complexes and the uh the six private prisons.
0: Did you say 42,000 approximately? Yes. Wow. That is so many people. My goodness. <laughs> That's a, it's a good sized system, yeah. It's
1: oh my gosh. Oh. 9,000 9, employees in the de- uh, that
0: work for the department itself. Wow. 9,000. Man. Jeez. Okay. So that is a lot of people, a lot of, uh, like you say, small cities around there. Whoa, tell you. Um, so the, when you were working inside the cell blocks, did you have, what kind of experiences did you have there? Did you ever work the maximum security? I'm sure you've worked all of them, but what
1: yeah I actually these? uh my uh my strongest base of experience was working the higher custody higher custody areas um uh, both as a uh, uniformed officer as well as a admin administrator. Uh, it seemed that I got those assignments running maximum security so the main maximum security prisons in Florence, which would be the original prison, the central unit the special management unit one, special management unit two, I was assigned as the deputy warden there for different times of my uh, career. And then as the warden of the Iman complex twice within my career. And that was, uh, they housed the death row, all the validated uh, security threat group prison gang guys. uh, And uh, that's where the main sex offender, population for the department is also housed hey. uh, so <laughs> spends a lot of time with those guys spends
0: oh my god those guys oh my god yeah
1: now it, it can be challenging but a lot of it you know really comes down to uh, how you manage yourself how you manage your own emotions how you interact with people um in regardless of the custody level the the custody level uh, does make it different for you. The higher custody, the more uh, propensity for violence against the officers can be, as well as inmate on inmate. Um, a lot of it is, uh, you know, trusting to your training, trusting to your awareness level, and uh, your ability to interact and manage people.
0: Well, I would imagine that you would really have to be on target and reading nonverbal communication. And I mean, just dealing with those guys. I mean, on the streets, one thing, but when they're got nothing to do but sit there and contemplate all day, <laughs> oh boy. Did, now, did we ever- Yeah, they have time. They have definitely
1: have time and observation opportunities on their side. Uh, high custody prisons are also very busy. You know, the every hour of the day virtually in a prison setting, is programmed in one form or another the inmates must work Uh, there's a hard labor law that arizona has that uh, every able-bodied inmate must work Uh, so unless they are uh, given a non-work order because of health needs mental health needs or if they're in, in some form of a detention administrative segregation status uh, they're they're required to work, so there's a lot of work going on just in the upkeep of the prison each day, uh, as well as different industries that take place that the department manages. Uh, you have uh, programming going on. You have meal services that need to take place. Uh, there's maintenance that needs to take place on the unit itself. Um, inmates need. Uh, recreation time so they get time out in the yard to exercise and uh, engage in some form of uh, physical activity
0: a lot going on oh my goodness yeah and you know i think it's kind of a maybe it was in the old days but i think it's kind of a a misconception that uh inmates just hang around and lift weights all day i mean from what you're telling me they've had specific assignments and uh, things that we're required to do um, what yes. happens if they just refuse it? well uh, there's a disciplinary system that's very similar
1: to what occurs on the street you know when a police officer pulls over somebody for a traffic violation and gives them a ticket for that traffic traffic violation uh it's very similar in the prison system when an inmate violates any of the institutional rules and regulations the correctional officer puts them on report and then uh, based on the outcome of that the review of that report then it can be sanctioned uh to loss of privileges all the way to having his custody raised depending on the severity of the violation to go into a higher custody a more
0: restrictive environment so they have that incentive to walk the line so to speak yeah Mm. now were were you ever uh did you ever have i know there were some some riots out there in Florence, I know that. Um, were you ever involved in any of that where you felt like uh, you were in extreme danger? So,
1: you know, prison riots happen um, at different times for different reasons. Uh, a lot of times it's uh, within the inmates themselves due to uh, there's a lot of uh, racial tension inside a prison. Uh, and inmates bond band together based on race, not necessarily uh, just based on a neighborhood. So there can be racial tension based on one inmate group owing drug drug debt to another. Unfortunately, uh, you know drugs have a way of getting into the prison as long as uh, inmates have access to the free world either through visitors coming to visit them during visitation time. Unfortunately, there may be a corrupt employee, a contractor, or inmates who go out into the community to work and then are able to find a way to conceal drugs and bring them into the system. Those are some of the things that happen. And then uh, you get a conflict based on that drug debt and a fight breaks out. And one of the unwritten rules that the inmates have on themselves is that uh you know, if if a riot breaks out, if a large fight breaks out, you are required to get involved and support your racial group, whether you want to or not. Otherwise, there's repercussions for you from that. So, you know, I've experienced a number of those throughout my career. I also was a member of the tactical support unit for over 16 years, and the tactical support unit is the prison SWAT team. Uh, so, I uh, I worked my way through that, um, for several years as a, uh, squad member, squad leader. Um, I spent some time behind a, a rifle as a sniper and mm. ultimately, mm. ultimately was, uh, was the commander of the team in, uh, in the Florence complex before I finally let it go. Mm. So there's been a number of different, uh, different riot situations that, you know, they give you that very high pucker factor, if you will. Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. You know, because there's a lot of them and a lot less of us. Sure. Sure. And you know, the things can turn on you if you don't, if you don't manage things well, Really, what it comes down to is good, solid, regular training, having some highly motivated people that want to take care of business. And, um, being prepared, being prepared to respond at a moment's notice, because inside the prison it just takes a spark. Yep. And
0: things can go bad really, really fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'll be honest with you, Ernie. I would feel safer if I was working there as part of the SWAT team versus working the inside just on a normal basis because I'm thinking, now you tell me. I'm thinking I'm on the inside working and you can get blindsided in a heartbeat, ambushed or whatever. And I'm thinking on the SWAT team, Well, okay, you know what you're, <laughs> you know, what's in front of you and you're in a team and you're more proactive than just all of a sudden waiting reactive, so to speak. I don't know. You tell me. I can tell you that there's a misnomer that the
1: more active you are in tactics and things like that makes you a better officer. That's not necessarily the case. Inside the prison unit, the successful officer is one who is fair, firm, and consistent in the way they do their job. Uh, They are very open and communicative with the inmate population. Uh, They don't show favoritism. They don't bring their home life to work with them. They're not moody. they uh, they're they're typically the person that shows compassion shows a little bit of healthy humor and what i mean by healthy humor is they're not into you know sexual jokes and racial jokes and things like that just good uh, good communication good interaction with people they're people people
0: sure sure i
1: can Uh, see that those are the ones that uh really find good success in managing and dealing with an inmate population, because they can be trusted.
0: They mm-hmm. can be trusted to do the right thing um, each time. Well, you know, I've talked to uh, some prison guards. Uh, well, no, actually, they weren't a guard. He was an electrician. And mm-hmm. he he would he worked a prison, and but he had inmates with electrical background working under him within the prison. And he said, those guys are geniuses. I mean, they were the best workers, but then they, you know, they get paroled or something there, there they go. They go sideways and end up back in there. But once they're kind of cleaned up and on the uh, working and he's supervising them, he says, Hey, those were some of the greatest guys you'd ever want to meet. (laughs) Yeah. The wasted talent inside a prison
1: is incredible. Artistic skills, uh, writing you know for those that have better literacy uh, music uh, and then working in the trades you know the prison runs the backbone of labor to keep the prison operating is the inmate population and then they're led with by uh tradespeople like electricians carpenters uh, plumbers welders people who are uh, generalists in the trades that, you know, do no building maintenance, uh, HVAC stuff. Uh, But it's really the inmates who who make that work. And yeah, they they are some of the best workers you'll find because their world is structured for them. The problem uh, begins is when if they came in with a drug addiction, alcohol addiction, things like that, that goes untreated and undealt with while they're inside, when they hit the streets again, that temptation's still there, and unfortunately that's where they end up failing and coming back mm. because mm. they didn't address that, and that's probably one of the greatest needs that any correctional system has is having enough human resources and money to apply good, strong programs that really work towards helping the inmate population address their mental health and drug needs.
0: I see, sure, yeah, and. I can see how you know that's uh, benefits society because eventually they get out. I mean, society's better off if you've got someone that comes out squared away versus right back into the same mess, for sure. Well,
1: yeah. tell well, me, more how- than ninety percent of these guys is going to be getting out at some point in time. How do we want them to come out? Yeah, the same way that they came in, or you know, having addressed their issues. So, did you see a lot of recidivism? Yes, unfortunately, recidivism uh, typically is high. Um, again, it comes down to the the resources that you can bring to bear uh, on the on the problem, and the problem being uh, both mental health and uh, addictions. Mm-hmm. No. So a lot of a lot of guys it really depends on what they want to do I, you know this is a personal philosophy but i think the truth in sentencing law that that went into effect in the 1990s has had a detrimental effect on being on recidivism and be, that's because you have to do 80 currently 85% of your sentence before you are eligible for any form of release so a lot of inmates don't even address Start to program and address their needs until they're very close to release time, because there's no other incentive for them to try to do that, other unless they really care about changing themselves, and a lot of sure. them don't until much later. You know, part of it is uh, aging out of this out of the process. When they're young, they think they're going to live forever and have time on their hands, and as they start aging, then they start realizing, I can't do this criminal life forever. My body won't yeah. handle it. Oh, I'll tell you. But yeah, that's the problem with recidivism is uh, being able to adequately address those kinds of needs. And it really takes evidence-based programs. It can't just be something somebody thought of uh, that they, they think will work. It, it, mm-hmm. it has to mm-hmm. be studied well to know what to do with it. Because, you know, corrections is a very expensive process for, for governments. You know, the Department of Corrections in Arizona... Their annual budget is over one point one million. Excuse me, one point one billion dollars of the state budget. It's incredibly expensive. Oh yeah, and that's just because of uh, healthcare. Uh, Healthcare costs for the inmate population is extremely high, Um, and then you have the personnel costs associated with uh, nine thousand employees. Sure, sure. Before you know it. $1.1 billion
0: is gone very fast. Well, let me ask you. Now, I know a lot of people speak out of ignorance about this matter, but a lot of people have the idea that if prison was won correctly, it should be a profit-making organization. Is that kind of a uh, fallacy, uh, especially in light of who you're dealing with? Well. I would say, yeah, it's difficult
1: to make a profit on prison unless you're in the profit, unless you have a profit-making model. You'd have to literally totally restructure the prison system as it is now to turn a profit for it. Um, the way the private prisons, the privateers do it is they're able to call out the healthiest inmates, the most able-bodied inmates. Uh, that lower their their overhead costs, oh. and they charge a premium price to each state for each bed that they manage mm. uh, so that's how they make their money on that because you know somebody's putting the bill and taking on
0: a larger share, if you will, of the cost to, to how's that in me so <laughs> they can kind of pick and choose the cream of the crop there who are they going to take, huh? Yeah, the way they structure those, uh, uh, those contracts. Well, that makes they sense. Get, oh, boy. You know,
1: the ones that are absolutely the healthiest with the least uh, amount of problems and so forth.
0: I see. Wow, Wow. Well, tell me, if you were the head of the whole prison system today, what is one thing that you would change? Oh, my. And I asked that thinking, well, maybe there was something that, man, if you could have just get that part squared away, I, things would change a lot. Well, one of the greatest
1: difficulties in a good economy that the law enforcement community struggles with is recruitment and retention of, of good officers. Mm. You know, when, when, when the economy is good, a lot of people are not drawn to putting their lives in danger. In a bad economy, recruitment and retention is much better because people need jobs I you know, see jobs provide good uh good benefit packages and things like that um, right now you know the department is and has been and has been in dire straits in terms of uh, the amount of vacancies uh, the director of corrections doesn't have the power to just grant raises to their workforce but if I were the if I were the director, I would do everything in my power to lobby the governor for support and the legislature to give correctional staff in this prison system a substantial raise because the job is a dangerous job. Um, it's a thankless job because, as you said earlier in this in this podcast, you know a lot of people they they want to lock them up and then put them away and not think about them again. But the reality is is somebody has to go in there twenty four seven because they never close. And keep these prisons safe and do something to keep an inmate productively engaged and f- making ways for them to change their outlook and behavior so that when they do get out, they get out becoming a productive citizen, not a drain back on society again. Mm-hmm. The, backbone, the backbone of any, any work on the street or in the prison is the uniformed officer that's where the real main work gets done is through them because they're the face and the one who has the touch with the community and the touch with the inmate population on a regular basis.
0: Well, I agree with you. I always thought that uh, I've looked at the ad, uh, the personnel ads for guards and that, and the pay is just horrible. I think (laughs) for what, for like you said, for the, the danger they face and the climate they have to work in. I mean, that's probably one of the most underpaid jobs in law enforcement that I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, boy. Yeah.
1: Arizona, Arizona has has been for several years uh, just in the Southwest at the bottom of the pay scale per capita for the size of prison and system and so forth. Uh, there are smaller systems that have a uh, little less pay. But, uh, you know, the main competitors for Arizona's workforce uh, are the county detention systems, for example. And Maricopa County, Pima County, and uh, Pinal County all pay substantially more than what the state does for their detention staff. And as a result, uh, they're able to poach a lot of good employees.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You train them and then, uh, sure. (laughs) Well, okay. So, Ernie... This has been fascinating. I could talk to you forever. There's lots more that you just barely scratched the surface. But So now you've retired. Yeah. What is your vision for your retirement now? I know you're involved in your church a lot as a deacon with the Catholic Church. What are your, kind of your goals now? Well, you know, I, I
1: retired. I was fortunate to retire at a relatively young age. So I, I, I expect to have a whole lot of life ahead of me. I, at least I'm praying that I do. Um, and really a lot of it is just going to be in service back to, to the community that I've served all my adult life, um, both through my church and my work as a, uh, Roman Catholic deacon. I've been ordained now for 11 years and, uh, I'm getting ready to hopefully this fall start a, some new schooling and, uh, go for a master's degree in, uh, in religious work. I don't know exactly what that's gonna look like yet, but uh, do something that's gonna make me a better a better minister. Likewise, um, I volunteer with the Law Enforcement Torch Run and Special Olympics. Uh, I have a special needs great granddaughter that motivates me to give back as much as I can mm-hmm. to, to all those who have uh, developmental disability and intellectual disabilities. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's gonna be about uh, continued service just in a different way of doing it. Yeah.
0: Well, it sounds like you've got a yeah. plan and a purpose there and it sounds pretty good to me and well, thank you for all the years <laughs> that you did a job that a lot of people didn't want to do and my hat's off to you it speaks volumes how you started started in uh, on the bottom floor and worked your way up. That's that's an amazing thing. Well, listen, I know that yeah, it really is, isn't it? It's a, it's an honor yeah. to serve, and I see Absolutely. that attitude. I see that attitude in you, and that's I think why you made it as far as you did in in that system. But listen, Ernie, thank you so much for being a guest on the the podcast. And now I know your your wife Liz. Uh, she's still working, uh, transporting or something in her retirement years. So you guys are on the ball, that's for sure. But I'm going to have to get with Liz and get her on the podcast and get some of the insights that and uh experiences she had on the mean streets of mesa (laughs) but i want to i want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and listen we'll be in touch we'll we'll get together okay bill well thank you thank you sir you bet take care thank you for listening to the boys in blue podcast again i'm your host retired police officer bill McReynolds. Boys and Blue comes out every other week. Subscribe to the Boys and Blue wherever you get your podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and let us know what you think.